Ah, baseball. The crack of the bat, the smell of the hot dogs, the surly fans yelling at the umpire. There's nothing quite like it. And yet, being a baseball fan in 2020 can feel a bit like being on a slowly sinking ship, albeit a luxury liner. The best thing about baseball today is its yesterdays. So goes the quotation from Lawrence Ritter. A quotation that is, of course, already many yesterdays old. You can even get the impression that the people in charge of baseball aren't in love with baseball. It seems like all we hear from the league office is hand-wringing about how long the games are getting, and how the sport needs to attract younger fans. Attendance in baseball has been on the decline for more than a decade. Of course, before we get into too much doom and gloom, things are still going pretty well for baseball. Major League Baseball is the second most profitable sports league in the world, behind only the NFL. And, unlike the NFL, baseball doesn't have inherent concussion issues to grapple with. Still, you could be forgiven for getting a little rosy-eyed and nostalgic when thinking about the sport. There was a time when the Great White North sat atop the throne of America's pastime. And, for a few brief months in 2015, it looked like it was all ready to come back. This is the story of the 2015 Toronto Blue Jays. Welcome to Champions in Our Hearts, a podcast about teams and players that didn't quite make it all the way, but still deserve as much love as if they had. The Toronto Blue Jays came into Major League Baseball in 1977. They were Canada's second team, joining the Montreal Expos, who had been around since 1969. As an expansion team, the Jays struggled their way through their first few seasons, but by the mid-80s, they were a promising squad. They first reached the playoffs in 1985, but lost the Kansas City Royals in the ALCS, the semifinals. After that, the Jays had a number of strong seasons, but never tasted ultimate glory until 1992, when they captured their first World Series. They, of course, went on to repeat in 1993 on Joe Carter's famous walk-off home run. At the time, the Blue Jays led the league in both payroll and attendance. They had more fans in the stands than any other team in baseball. They spent more money on the team than anyone else in the league. They were champions of the league. By any metric, the Blue Jays were kings of Major League Baseball. What happened next, though, it's no exaggeration to say nearly destroyed the game of baseball in Canada. In August of 1994, MLB players went on strike. The owners were trying to impose a salary cap on the players who wouldn't budge. The rest of the season, the playoffs, and the World Series were all cancelled. At the time, the Blue Jays were actually having a pretty poor season, but their neighbors up the 401 in Montreal certainly weren't. The Montreal Expos had the best record in baseball when the season was cancelled. They had a young team on the rise, and they were on their way to their second-ever playoff appearance. After the strike, Expos management gutted the team, trading away their best players or letting them walk as free agents in an effort to keep costs down. Fans in Montreal never forgave them, attendance plummeted, and the Expos were into a decade-long death spiral that would see baseball leave Montreal permanently in 2004. For the Blue Jays, the decline was more gradual. Yes, attendance went down for them as well. A bigger blow was the loss of Pat Gillick, the team's one and only general manager. He had built the Jays from scratch into a team that spent an entire decade contending and ultimately winning. His successor, Gord Ash, did not do the same. For today's episode, I spoke with Matthew Weber of baseball blog Bluebird Banter. 
He talked to me about the experience of becoming a Blue Jays fan in the late 90s, sticking with the team through the lean years, and he also shared his perspective on the team's history. He didn't mince words when it comes to Gordash. The problem was Gordash was terrible. He basically ran the franchise down. You had the interbrew takeover of Labatt. At the time, the Blue Jays were owned by Canadian beer company Labatt, who had just been bought by a big multinational. Which meant they went from being sort of the crown jewel to an afterthought in a corporate empire, and then the Canadian dollar was bottoming out. As a result, the Jays had fallen from their peak. In 2000, media corporation Rogers bought the team, and Gordash was replaced by J.P. Ricciardi. He guided the team through some solid but unspectacular seasons and was fired in 2009, replaced by his assistant, Alex Anthopoulos. Anthopoulos was from Montreal, a big fan of the Expos growing up. When he was 21, his father passed away from a heart attack. He and his brothers took up the family business, a heating and ventilation company. After two years, Anthopoulos decided it wasn't for him. He had an economics degree from McMaster, but he wanted a job in baseball. Calling everyone he could, he eventually got a volunteer gig, sorting fan mail for the Montreal Expos. Sacrificing more lucrative career options, Anthopoulos worked menial baseball jobs for years, soaking up everything he could, and slowly, and then very quickly, climbing the ladder. Now, at the remarkably young age of 32, he was general manager of the Toronto Blue Jays. He quickly gained a reputation for leaving no stone unturned, making resourceful moves to earn extra draft picks, and trying to stockpile young talent. For Anthopolis, like many sports managers, the plan was to build a team of young players that would make it a contender for years and years to come. In his first full year of the team, something surprising happened. 29-year-old journeyman Jose Bautista came out of nowhere to lead the league in home runs, having a monster season. The 2010 Blue Jays put up a really strong record, but the focus was still firmly on the future. That year, they were able to draft a number of promising youngsters. A couple more years passed, and the Jays did a little worse, but that wasn't unexpected. It would take time for the new crop of young players to develop and make it to the league. Things were trending upwards, Attendance was slowly ticking back after bottoming out in 2010, and the Blue Jays were quite literally starting to look more like they did in the glory days. See, for about a decade, the Blue Jays didn't wear blue at all. A 2004 rebrand had the team wearing black uniforms, with a new, edgier, angry, mean-looking Blue Jay. How did you feel about those uniforms with the mean kind of Blue Jay and the black? I think I liked them when they first came out because I was probably a little bit younger, but they were objectively terrible. You, you had such a great traditional classic logo that there was really no reason to go away from it. The Jays wisened up and went back to the classic logo in 2012. Whether or not they could fix their team as well was still an open question. That year, Edwin Encarnacion became a remarkably similar story to teammate Jose Bautista. He played third base for the Jays for a few years, and his defense wasn't good. It earned him the nickname E5, which is how you would write down an error by the third baseman. Before 2012, the Jays had actually let him go on waivers. Oakland claimed him, but never signed him to a contract. Anthopoulos surprised everybody by bringing back Encarnacion. He said the team wouldn't play him at third base anymore. He would just play some first and be a designated hitter. In 2012, everything clicked for Encarnacion, and he and Bautista gave the Blue Jays two of the best sluggers in the game, although the team overall was still kinda meh. 
2013 was a big year in Blue Jays history. That offseason, they made a huge trade with the Miami Marlins. The Marlins were looking to dump salary, and the Blue Jays ended up taking on three big contracts, and with them, the thinking goes, three star players. Josh Johnson, Jose Reyes, and Mark Burley. Following up on that, the Jays made another massive trade to get the reigning National League Cy Young winner, the best pitcher from last season, R.A. Dickey. Who did the Blue Jays give up to get all of these stars? A lot of the young prospects Anthopolis had been fiendishly stockpiling since 2010. But there was a real buzz around the league. The Blue Jays became World Series favorites, according to the odds makers. Fans packed the stands for the opening series, only things didn't go as planned. The Jays finished dead last in their division. The 2013 season was just, that was honestly the most miserable I think I've ever you know, sort of slogged through a season. I can remember when the end of that season came, I didn't want to think about baseball for three months. If there was anything good about the 2013 season, it was the emergence of Munonori Kawasaki, a veteran shortstop from Japan who the Jays called up when they were hit by injuries. Kawasaki's slim physique earned him the nickname Noodle from his teammates. He played surprisingly well on the field, but it was his skills with the media that won him everyone's hearts. Here's the interview Kawasaki gave after hitting a game-winning double one that endeared him to every sports fan in the city. What do you have to say for yourself? Thank you very much. My name is Munenori Kawasaki. I'm from Japan. I'm Japanese! From that moment on, Kawasaki was a highly sought interview, and he was never afraid to face the cameras despite not knowing much English. Apparently, Kawasaki is just as quirky giving interviews in Japanese. The Jays did a little better in 2014, but nothing to write home about. Kawasaki was once again the most fun part of the season. Behind the scenes, Rogers, the team's owners, were looking to make some moves. They'd spent a lot of money the last two years and didn't have much to show for it. They tried to replace team president Paul Beeston, the first ever employee of the Blue Jays, behind his back. And it was eventually decided that he would retire after 2015. Alex Anthopoulos was on an expiring contract as well. If the Jays didn't turn things around, he was probably gone too. Going into the year, Anthopoulos made a couple of big splashes, adding star Canadian catcher Russell Martin, and most significantly, trading for Josh Donaldson. Donaldson was one of the better players in baseball, and together with Bautista and Encarnacion, he gave the Blue Jays an extremely powerful middle of the lineup. More than halfway through the season, the Jays had the best offense in baseball, but they had won as many games as they had lost. And the thing I remember about 2015 was they were just so snake-bitten. That July, the Jays surprised everyone in baseball by making a huge trade. Shortstop Jose Reyes and a pair of prospects were going to the Colorado Rockies. And in return, the Blue Jays got Troy Tulowitzki, at the time thought of as the best shortstop in baseball. The thing to remember when they made the Tulowitzki trade is they were about seven games out of the division. They didn't have a shot at the division. What they were hoping for was sort of the wild card at that point. So, the underperforming Blue Jays gave themselves a shot in the arm with a big new star player. Surely, the rest of the team had to be thrilled. Well, not necessarily. Here's how Jose Bautista reacted to the news. I mean, if you want to look at a pure baseball move, I think uh, there's, there's upgrades in different areas. Um, maybe not necessarily what we need, uh, but it, it is an upgrade if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. He was sad about losing a friend in Jose Reyes. Mainly, though, he thought the Jays needed pitching. They already had the most potent offense in baseball. A few days later, he got his wish. 
the Blue Jays acquired David Price, one of the premier pitchers in baseball. Now, if it feels like I've said one of the best players a lot lately, it's because it's true. The Blue Jays looked kind of like a fantasy team on paper at this point. Bautista texted Anthopolis to see if the rumors about Price were true. The GM confirmed them. Yes, was Bautista's text response. The Blue Jays team with a middling record went on a ludicrous tear the rest of the season. They easily won the division and fans poured into the stands. There was an excitement and a hunger for baseball not seen in the city for decades. They were headed to the playoffs for the first time in 22 years. When they clinched the division, the players had a massive celebration. Munonori Kawasaki summed up the whole mood of the team and city. Tonight a push party tonight. Let's go. No sleeping. Don't stop the party. Push party tonight. Let's go. And party the Blue Jays did. But of course, they still had to actually play in the playoffs. They matched up against the Texas Rangers in a best of five series. Fans crammed into the Rogers Center for game one and made a lot of noise, and the Blue Jays lost. And then they lost the next game. Trailing 2 to nothing in the series, the Jays had to go to Texas and could not afford another loss. Marco Estrada, who opened the season in the bullpen, turned in a terrific start, and the Jays won the game to stay alive. They won the game after that, sending the series back to Toronto for a decisive Game 5. What was it like for Blue Jays fans who were too young to remember the 93 win? I can remember every every time you go on to the Globe and Mail, you know, the Jays having a game would be front page news, not the results of the game, just it's game five tonight, it's game three tonight, right? Like, and I'm sitting there, I had never experienced that before, right? Like, they were always just sort of an afterthought. An afterthought no more, the Blue Jays got ready for game five. A game that featured what some would call the most dramatic inning of baseball they'd ever seen. The Jays went down two to nothing. They managed to scrape one run back in the third inning. Still down in the sixth, Encarnacion hit a towering home run to tie things up at two. For the next 53 minutes, we would be in the seventh inning. The Rangers were up to bat first. They had a runner make it to third base with two outs. Then, there was one of those moments that makes sports so wild. It happened on the most routine play imaginable, the catcher throwing the ball back to the pitcher. Something that happens hundreds of times in every single baseball game. Catcher Russell Martin threw the ball back to Aaron Sanchez, but it hit the bat of Shinsu Chu and bounced a few feet away. The runner scampered home from third base, and everyone was confused. The umpire told the runner to go back. Rangers manager Jeff Bannister went out to argue. All of the umpires had a lengthy conference, and they decided the run should count. Texas took the lead. The more than 50,000 fans in the Rogers Center were incensed. Some even threw stuff onto the field. The Jays got out of the inning and were trailing by one run. Thanks to this weird, fluky play, their season was on life support. I remember just thinking, that's, that's how the Blue Jays are going to lose. I just said, it's so appropriate that this is how they're going to go. I just said, yep, that's, that's the way it goes. Stuck in traffic? Looking to put a spring in your morning commute? Then jump to work with a pogo stick. Pogo is great for avoiding crowded subways too. In fact, when you're on a pogo stick, everyone will rush to stay six feet away from you. And with a pogo stick, you'll never need to worry about a flat tire. So don't delay, hop online and visit www.igopogo.ca to order yours today. Remember, don't just go, 
Pogo. The Jays were up to bat, down by one run. Catcher Russell Martin, the guy who just made the fluke throw, he was up first. He hit a ground ball to the shortstop, Elvis Andrus. And Andrus dropped the ball, so Martin was safe at first. The next batter, Kevin Pillar, hit a hard grounder to first. The first baseman tried to throw out Martin at second, but the throw was bad. Andrus dropped it. Everyone was safe. Two plays, two errors. The next batter, Ryan Goins, was asked to bunt, to sacrifice himself and move the other two runners up a base. The Rangers tried to get the runner at third, and they dropped the ball. Texas had made a third straight error. The bases were loaded, nobody was out, the Jays still down by one. The Rangers managed to get the next guy to ground out without a run scoring. Now they had to face Josh Donaldson, who wound up winning the MVP that season. Donaldson hit a weird pop-up just over the head of the second baseman. The Rangers managed to get an out, but a runner came home, and the game was tied. The next batter was Jose Bautista, the guy who had been a breakout star five years ago, the face of the Blue Jays, in a tie game with two outs. Here's the call from longtime Blue Jays radio man Jerry Howarth. One and one on Jose. All eyes on the mound and the bearded Sam Dyson. Now he comes set. Kicks the 1 1 pitch. Fly ball deep left field. Yes, sir. There she goes. With a single swing and flip of a bat, Bautista erased 22 years of mediocrity. And when Bautista hit that home run, I remember, I, I, I just, I didn't have a reaction for a minute. I was just staring at the screen for a minute, just in, in disbelief. This doesn't happen to the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays hung on and won 6-3. Bautista's home run and majestic bat flip are what everyone remembers about that year. The Jays lost in the next round to the Kansas City Royals. The last game of that series sticks in my mind as well. The Jays were down 3-2 in the series. They needed to win to force Game 7. Down in the game, Jose Bautista again tried to put the team on his back. He hit a pair of home runs. The Royals had a one-run lead into the ninth inning, and it was do or die for the Jays. Leadoff hitter makes it on board. Pinch runner, Dalton Pompey, a Mississauga native, steals second base. Steals third base. He's 90 feet away from tying things. No one is out. Kevin Pillar gets on base as well. Then the Royals struck out the next two batters, helped by a terrible strike call on Ben Revere that made me forever and always a proponent of robot umps. Josh Donaldson grounded out to end the Blue Jays season, leaving the tying and go-ahead runs in scoring position. The man on deck for the Blue Jays at the time, Jose Bautista. The folk hero with two home runs in the game already wouldn't get another chance to save the Blue Jays season. There would be no more bat flips that year. Sure, it was frustrating to watch the Blue Jays' dream end at the hands of a Royal squad that just seemed so mediocre. If they'd lost to a big Goliath super team, it might have in some ways been easier to take. But with years of hindsight, it almost doesn't matter that they lost. In 2015, the Blue Jays had the best run differential in the major leagues. They scored way more runs than they conceded. It wasn't close. There were 97 runs better than the next team. The baseball playoffs are always a bit of a crapshoot. And besides, sports isn't about 
trophies. Trophies are just useless hunks of metal. Sports are about people and moments. Someone wins the World Series every year. That seventh inning against the Rangers, that's once in a lifetime. After the season, Anthopoulos left the Blue Jays. He was offered a contract by the incoming president. It would have been a PR nightmare if he wasn't, but there was a sense that he wouldn't have the same control over the team as he used to. New president Mark Shapiro wanted to be more hands-on in the baseball operations department. If Anthopoulos had kept his job, it would have almost been like accepting a demotion. The Jays went on a similar run the next year, once again making the semifinals, and the fans stuck around for an extra year after that. Now though, just five years after their whirlwind run, not a single player who was with the Jays in 2015 remains. Such is the grind of professional sports. The new team management set out on that familiar plan of accumulating a bunch of young players to be competitive year in, year out. The Jays have suffered through a few lean years as a result, and the fans who came back in 2015 haven't stuck around. Things are looking up though. The young Blue Jays squad just made the expanded playoffs in a weird pandemic season. And the fabled oasis of a group of young players who can compete for years seems to finally be on the horizon. There's no reason Toronto shouldn't be a, a big market for baseball because in terms of population, we're the largest city, the largest metropolis in North America that only has one baseball team. LA, New York, and Chicago all have two teams that, that divide the loyalties and revenues, right? So Toronto's the biggest one. So really, they should be able to, you know, but, but I think what it requires doing is, is the, the cart before the horse. You've got to do what they did in the 80s, which was they put a winning team on the field and then, you know, they had three, four million fans and the revenues were there to be able to sustain it over time. So there's hope. In sports, there's always hope. That's part of what must keep people like Matt and I coming back year after year. If the new young Jays do manage to win one day, they'll still have to be pretty special to make us forget about 2015. About guys like Jose Bautista, Edwin Encarnacion, even Munanori Kawasaki. Guys who made us smile, even when the team kind of sucked. The Blue Jays could win the World Series tomorrow, and they wouldn't do what these guys did. Make a city come alive for the first time in a lifetime. Show us that yes, good things can happen to the sports team you cheer for. No matter if or when the Blue Jays win another World Series, I'll always remember the first time when I could call them champions in our hearts. Champions in Our Hearts is written and produced by Joseph Pugh. A very special thank you to Matthew Weber for coming on the show this week. And don't forget to join us next time when we'll take another look at some underappreciated heroes from our collective sports past.